Okay, thank you very much. And uh, you're all very welcome uh, here uh, this afternoon for this uh, seminar. And uh, I personally am very delighted to have been asked to chair the seminar, and for this reason. In the past few months, we have commemorated, and some have celebrated, the centenary of the Easter Rising, and also the centenary of the Battle of the Somme. And most of us would agree, I think, that these events were better organized and were of a much better character than some of us might have expected. But there was a gap in the historical landscape that was presented to us this year, a gap which John Bruton has tried to close, though without success. That gap arose from the failure to give due recognition to the Irish parliamentary tradition and to its contribution to the achievement of an independent Irish state and to shaping the political culture of the state. In fact, the tradition was singled out for quite extraordinary disrespect in the curious incident of the banners on the facade of the Bank of Ireland building in College Green. These banners were a minimalist attempt to commemorate at the home of the pre-1801 Irish Parliament some heroes of the Irish parliamentary tradition. Henry Grattan, O'Connell, Parnell and John Redmond. But the Sinn Féin members of Dublin City Council led a chorus of complaints about the banners on the grounds of in the words of the Irish Times, their seeming inappropriateness in the context of the 1916 centenary. The Sinn Féin protests were supported by a motley crew of councillors from Fianna Foyle, the Anti-Austerity Alliance, People Before Profit, and Independence. And the banners were removed immediately after the matter was considered at a meeting of the Council. At the Parnell Summer School in August this year, I tackled Owen O'Brien, the Sinn Féin TD, about this mean-spirited effort by his party to denigrate what was the majority tradition in Irish nationalist politics throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. And his response was that three of the four individuals were not around in 1916 and so were not relevant to the history of 1916. I feel pretty sure he would not have taken that view if the banners had featured Wolf Tone, Robert Emmett, James Stevens, and O'Donovan Rossa. So I think it is timely that we should today remember the forgotten patriots of the Irish parliamentary tradition. And in that spirit, I welcome you all here today and have great pleasure in introducing our speakers. We have four speakers. In the order in which they will speak, Dermot Milidi, who uh, is the author of 
the two-volume, highly acclaimed two-volume biography of John Redmond. And he's going to speak to us today about the All for Ireland League. Tom Carew uh, is a retired trade union official with wide history interests and accomplishments, and he's going to speak to us about D.D. Sheehan. We will then have Frank Callanan, SC, who uh, is the author of a biography of Tim Healy and a forthcoming book on James Joyce and nationalism, which I think is imminent. Uh, and he is going to speak about John Dillon. And our final speaker, uh, John Bruton, uh, is also going to speak about John Dillon. So, without further ado, I'm going to call on our first speaker, Dermot Melidi. Thank you. Thank you, Felix. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Ah. Okay, thanks. Uh, those of us who take an interest in the history of the 25 years after the death of Parnell in 1891, what, the period that, that many of us were brought up in, in school to believe was a barren wasteland from the political point of view, uh, we'll be aware that after... Uh, the death of Parnell, the Irish Parliamentary Party remained split for the rest of the decade of the 1890s. Not so many will be aware that, the healing, that after the, the healing of this split, there was a, the gradual development of a second split. And for well over a decade before 1916, a dissident form of constitutional nationalism flourished, localised in the south of Ireland and culminating in the formation of a breakaway party uh, which was called the all for Ireland League. Uh, the League was founded in 1909, but the, to explain the genesis of, the, of this fissure in constitutionalist politics, we need first to look back at the earlier Parnell split. The Parnell split was at first a two-way divide. On one side, the minority of Parnellite members who had remained loyal to the leader after the, um, the O'Shea divorce revelations, and on the other the majority, the anti-Parnellite members who felt that Parnell's continued leadership was impossible after the intervention of Gladstone. The issue, um, that issue of the independence of the Irish party dominated the politics of the, 18, uh, of the 1890s. But that question was overlain with others, specifically um, how the campaign against Parnell's leadership had been waged and how his followers and opponents um, uh, had behaved immediately after the split. And these questions were in turn the products of the different personalities and egos of the main protagonists. Uh, Redmond himself, uh, John Redmond had declared at the outset of the crisis that he was bound to Parnell by the, uh, quote, the double ties of private friendship and political allegiance. But he hadn't been one of the, the chief uh, the most prominent members of the party in the previous decade. Of the four chief conciliary, as you might call them, of, of Parnell, all turned against his leadership. These were T.M. Healy, William O'Brien, John Dillon, and Thomas Sexton. And of these four, uh, Healy was the most gifted and the ablest parliamentary performer, but also the most divisive and sharp-tongued. Uh, O'Brien and Dillon had been allied in... Um, in um, agrarian activities in the Land League and the National League, and O'Brien in particular had suffered several, several prison sentences for activities in the 1880s. Uh, but during the year of Parnell's fall, 
before his death in October 1891, the opposition to him was in two modes. That led by Healy and backed by the Catholic clergy was a no-holds-barred campaign of invective that didn't hesitate to stoop to the lowest forms of scurrility and personal insult. The other campaign led by Dillon and O'Brien at first held out the hope of finding an accommodation with Parnell which would uh, seek to preserve his dignity while removing him from the leadership. Uh, But O'Brien and Dillon were not uh, at the centre of the uh, struggle during that uh, 10 months because they were either out of the country or in jail for most of that period. So Healy more or less dominated the campaign against Parnell. Um, uh, Parnell's death, of course, intensified the bitterness between the two factions, but Dillon and O'Brien were, as anti-Parnellites, were equally horrified by the damage done by the rhetoric of Healy and his partisans, as by the accusations directed at, at them by the Parnellites. As the decade wore on, the decade of the 1890s wore on, the rift between Healy on the one hand and Dillon and O'Brien on the other hardened into a mutual hatred. So the nominally two-way party split became a three-way split. And by the end of the 1890s, this second split within the anti-Parnellite camp was, um, had become arguably bitterer than the original one between Parnellites and anti-Parnellites. In 1898, O'Brien now disillusioned with all factions, founded the United Irish League with a dual purpose. Firstly, of restarting agrarian agitation, and secondly, of generating popular pressure for the reunification of the the Irish party. And after much tortuous manoeuvring, John Redmond was elected leader in February 1900, with Dillon as as his deputy. Now, the um, events over the years had taken the edge off the original issue of the independence of the Irish party vis-à-vis the Liberals, but the personality conflicts had not evaporated in a, in, in a similar way. Um, and at the centre of these conflicts now, in 1900, was the conflict between O'Brien and Healy. O'Brien saw Healy as an inveterate factionist, representing all that was rotten in the old party. Healy viewed O'Brien as a dangerous egomaniac who wished to bully the uh, elected MPs into submission to his new UIL, or United Irish League, organisation. Redmond um, uh, struggled to maintain impartiality as the new leader. His relations with Healy had improved somewhat in in, in latter years. But on a motion of O'Brien's, Healy was denied entry to the new party. So Healy remained a maverick uh, MP within the constitutional camp, for the rest of his time in Parliament, for um, basically for 10 years. So we turn the spotlight now to these three, leaving Healy to one side. We turn the spotlight on O'Brien, Redmond and Dillon and their interrelationship. Um, the, the party, the, the newly reunited party, took up the land reform agenda of the UIL and adopted the UIL as its national organisation. Um, it took um, O'Brien directed a campaign of agrarian agitation and he waged it with great vigour to the point where by the summer of 1902 he was advocating a nationwide boycotting campaign that's boycotting of landlords in response the Tory government reintroduced coercion it um, proclaimed Dublin city and county and five other counties and jailed 10 MPs by the end of that year and uh, but in fact Redmond and Dillon as the 
leaders of the party by now had taken fright at the prospect of wholesale illegality and they wished to rein in O'Brien. Dillon himself was privately relieved at the, the proclamation, um, at the government's proclamation and told Redmond, quote, that it was not the first time the government has extricated us from serious difficulties by timely action. Now, just as coercion was reaching a climax in late 1902, suddenly conciliation was in the air. Two landlords uh, had letters in the newspapers advocating a roundtable conference of tenant and landlord representatives to hammer out a solution, some kind of a, an outline of a, of a new land bill. They, after many manoeuvrings, they, the land conference met in the mansion house over Christmas 1902. The result was an agreed report, which then formed the basis of the land purchase bill introduced in the following year by the Chief Secretary, uh, George Wyndham. The essence of these proposals was that, uh, well, it was essentially a package of incentives to landlords to sell their land voluntarily to the tenants. And uh, this could only be achieved, uh, there was a gap between the minimum that the landlords could accept and the maximum that the tenants could give. And that gap was to be bridged by government finance, by a bonus paid to the landlords. Now, Redmond and O'Brien threw all their energies in the parliamentary session of 1903 into getting this land bill passed. And um, it came into effect in November 1903. And it was a resounding success in terms of accelerating the transfer of land ownership in many Irish counties. It didn't do so well in the west of Ireland because it didn't uh, fulfill, um, it didn't embrace all the recommendations of the land conference report in breaking down the large uh, grassland estates in Mayo and other parts of the west of Ireland and breaking them up for the benefit of small farmers there. But in the, in the uh, other parts of the country, it was a, re a huge success. Under its terms and those of the Successor Act, 1909 Birrell Land Act, Agreements were entered into that would increase the proportion of Irish land transferred from 18% in 1903 to 61% by 1915. This was a bloodless revolution, which should be compared with many of the not-so-bloodless the not land revolutions in Eastern Europe and Russia uh, occurring around the same time. Um, a major achievement, I, I would uh, say, of constitutional nationalism. Uh, however... An influential group within the Irish party um, became highly critical of the Land Act. This group was led by Dillon and Michael Davitt. Davitt himself wasn't an MP at this stage. He was out of Parliament, but his name carried huge resonance and prestige. So there were Dillon and Davitt um, led this campaign, and their principal uh, ground of complaint was that it was over, the bonus payment was overgenerous to all landlords and artificially inflated the price, the market price of the land. For them, the standard of, of what land prices should be was 17 to 18 years per, uh, of rent. That was based on the old 1885 Ashburn Land Act. Uh, David and Dillon were supported by Thomas Sexton who was the chairman of the Freeman's Journal, the party newspaper, and later uh, 
Bishop O'Donnell of Raffaux, who was a major figure within the party, one of the treasurers of the uh, parliamentary fund, and Joseph Devlin, the leader of Belfast nationalism, they also joined in the campaign of criticism. So really, there were of the prominent figures in the party, there were really only Redmond and O'Brien uh, uh, waxing enthusiastic about the Land Act, even though tenants all over Ireland were flocking to uh, sign up to agreements with their respective landlords to buy out to buy the land under the terms of the Act. O'Brien was overwhelmed uh, not only by the party's success in winning the Act, but by the manner by which victory had been obtained, because a round-table negotiation among Irishmen of different traditions, nationalists and unionists, Protestant and Catholic, to hammer out a solution to a major social problem, that seemed like a template for a whole new approach to the resolution of Ireland's other problems, up to and including the winning of home rule. Now, Redmond, as Parnellite leader back in the 1890s, had also preached a milder version of that doctrine, that nationalists should reach out to the patriotic section of the landlord class who would be interested in investing their energies and wealth in Ireland. Dillon, on the other hand, was in the habit of speaking of landlords in such uh, derogatory terms as black-blooded Cromwellians. Uh, One thing is quite certain, he said, that Ireland can get along very well without them, the hereditary enemies and exterminators of our race. In August 1903, just after the Land Act had passed, but before it came into operation, he chose a, a town, the town of Swinford in his own constituency of East Mayo to launch a campaign against the Act. And that, uh, that campaign of criticism was labelled by O'Brien the, the Swinford Revolt. And his, uh, it basically expressed the belief, the deeply held belief of Dillon, that agrarian discontent and agitation was, was indispensable to maintaining mass support for the Home Rule movement. In, in this view, the prospect of actually abolishing landlordism was deeply threatening to Home Rule. Redmond had never agreed with that point of view. He had thought that even if, if every Irish tenant came to own his land, that would not abolish the national feeling, the, the national urge in favour of self-government. But um, to Dillon, uh, one had to go... Uh, one was indispensable to the other. And yet, we can see the contradiction in Dillon's uh, own stance because Dillon himself had shown his lack of stomach for pushing agrarian agitation to its logical conclusion only a year previously. Now, Redmond replied to Dillon's speech and reminded his hearers that Parnell had said, you must either fight for the land or pay for it. The bonus had been denounced as a bribe, uh, he said, and Redmond Redmond answered, well, frankly, it is a bribe, and for my part, I'm only sorry this bribe is not larger. He answered the criticism that the new prices were far higher than the the old Ashbourne prices. He said, well, why had not more tenants purchased in the past? The answer was, landlords would not sell. If the old land acts had worked, there wouldn't be any need for this one. Um, So O'Brien, with all the... A a former, uh, you might say, extreme radical on the agrarian front now with all the zeal of the convert, preached the policy of conciliation as the panacea for Ireland's many ills. Dillon made clear to Redmond that such a course was anathema to him. 
He wrote to, to Redmond, I, as you know, have all along been opposed to the policy of allowing the initiative on and the direction of large Irish questions to be taken out of the hands of the Irish party and handed over to conferences summoned by outsiders. So for the first time since the reunification, a new rift was opening between Redmond and Dillon. Uh, sorry, between Redmond and O'Brien on one side and Dillon, Davitt, Sexton and the Freeman's Journal on the other, backed by Bishop O'Donnell and Joseph Devlin. Bishop O'Donnell said the landlords were blinded by gold dust, intoxicated with greed. Dillon wrote a very ominous letter then to Redmond saying, I must explain to you that the same political relations cannot exist between us in the future as those which existed up to December last. I cannot now accept the same share of responsibility for the policy of the party. Redmond replied that he was very much pained and very uneasy about the future after what you have written to me. Now, the O'Brien continued to pressurise Redmond to, uh, to put down the rebellion against the policy which the party had ratified. That's the policy of conciliation. But Redmond told O'Brien that the unity of the party must be, paramount, must be paramount, that the conflict over land prices was merely a difference of opinion on non-essentials, and that in any case the criticism was not holding back land sale agreements. So he backed away from, from confrontation with Davitt, Dillon, Devlin and the other powerful forces in the party. And uh, as if his position was not already weak enough, a personal factor came into play. He had inherited a, a small estate in South Wexford from his uncle, a former, British, um, a former Lieutenant General in the British Army, John Patrick Redmond, who had died the previous year. This was an encumbered estate. It was in debt. The sale was negotiated to the tenants just as the controversy was going on in the party. And this, the terms seemed to be significantly, were significantly above Ashbourne levels at a nominal, in the nominal sense. But Redmond explained that the terms were actually far better than the bald figures indicated because the actual rents on the estate had been well below the national average. And there were other factors which I don't have time to go into, but they... The damage to Redmond's authority was done by the fact that here you had the, the party leader, the representative of the tenants at the previous year's conference, suddenly appearing in the garb of the hereditary enemy, as Dylan would have called them. Um, so much damage was done to Redmond's uh, position by that. Um, but Redmond calculated the strength of the forces against him the nightmare, in his view, the nightmare to be avoided at all costs was a renewal of the split. His mind was focused solely on the long-term goal of winning home rule. Everything else had to come secondary to that. That is why he, he refused to do what O'Brien wanted him to do. In November, frustrated by Redmond's refusal to exert his authority, O'Brien shocked the party by dramatically announcing his resignation and withdrawal from public life. So uh, their matters rested at the end, just as the Land Act came into operation. The following year, O'Brien came back into national politics. Re, uh, he was re-elected unopposed to his Cork City seat. He used that as a platform to launch a new campaign against the critics of the Land Act. So he was kind of um, he was technically within the party, and yet he refused to take the pledge to sit, act and vote in Parliament with the party. His reply to those who objected to this was that 
the people who had attacked the Land Act within the party, uh, they had refused to accept party policy, so why should he accept the pledge? For the next four years, he waged um, a non-stop campaign and, uh, from his Cork City base, and his preaching of the conciliation policy attracted the support of a small number of MPs in the South, mainly localised in uh, County Cork. One of those was Daniel D. Sheehan, of whom you'll be hearing from Tom later. Um, in spite of the uh, controversy, it didn't yet become a, a, a formal party split. And in the January 1906 general election, differences were papered over by, uh, with an agreement between the party and O'Brien's group to avoid contesting each other's constituencies. O'Brien, Sheehan and four other MPs were returned unopposed. Five were in County Cork, one in South Mayo. And then in the year 1907, there was a brief uh, reconciliation when all of O'Brien's group were readmitted to the party on, on condition that they, they agreed to sign the pledge and it seemed like the, the uh, potential rift had ended. Uh, Healy was also, uh, was also brought into the party fold in 1907, but the agreement was not to last. The conflicts between Dillon and O'Brien and between Dillon and Healy had become too deep-rooted to be suppressed, and exacerbating it was the increasing power of Joe Devlin on Dillon's side. Devlin, in addition to being secretary of the UIL, had also become the dominant figure in the ancient order of Hibernians, the Irish branch of that, this was an organisation which had begun in Ulster as a, a Catholic answer to the Orange Order and was extending its growth southward. It began to rival the UIL for membership at this stage. It exhibited many, many of the features of a sectarian body and it, um, its nickname was the Molly Maguires. O'Brien derisively slated it as the Mollies. Um, the final break came in February 1909 at the National Convention and the catalyst was differences of opinion over the new land bill. This, is, this was being introduced by the Liberals, uh, by Birrell, the new Chief Secretary. Well, not new, but uh, the Liberal Chief Secretary. Um, and this time the positions were reversed. O'Brien was critical of the new land bill because he thought it was going to undo many of the effects of the previous one. And Dillon and the party... Uh, hierarchy, the, the party authorities were in favour of this new land bill. Now, at this convention, which was in the Mansion House in Dublin in 1909, from the start it was obvious that a large section of the audience was there to drown out all expressions of dissent from the official party line. Redmond had to call for order when mildly critical motions were, um, were interrupted by organised heckling. When Devlin rose to reply to the, to the criticism, he was greeted with rapturous applause. And it may not have been coincidental that Devlin had brought with him from Belfast a trainload of over 300 enforcers in the form of members of the AOH. And O'Brien later alleged that these had, been, that they, these had come armed with wooden batons. When the new land bill came up for debate, Redmond was in the chair um, O'Brien moved his amendment heavily criticising the new bill, but he could not, he could not be heard for the noise. Uh, Redmond again appealed for order. The noise reached a peak when O'Brien claimed that land purchase had been killed. And at this point, an O'Brienite MP, Eugene Crean, rushed onto the platform and in the words of the Freeman's Journal, a most exciting scene ensued. Uh, 
Crean violently grabbed Redmond's chair but was restrained by others. O'Brien, again in the words of the Freeman, labouring under strong emotion, continued to speak but was again drowned out. Redmond's renewed appeals for order had little effect. Near the door, large numbers were pushing each other and O'Brien said he would have to bow to the storm and left the platform, vowing that the incident wouldn't end in that room. Um, His motion was defeated on a show of hands. O'Brien later claimed that the Belfast bludgeon men, as he called them, had been planted around the hall to stifle free debate by brutal threats and display of their weapons. For him, the national movement had now sunk to the deepest depths of degradation and become one large lodge of Molly Maguire's. So the chief, the chief political consequence of all this, of these proceedings, was the O'Brien's founding of the All for Ireland League in February that year. And in the two general elections of 1910, uh, the All for Ireland League, which was uh, basically the, the small group of, of MPs who had previously adhered to O'Brien, plus a few new ones, they won seven and eight seats respectively. There were two elections that year, January and December. This is my poor substitute for a PowerPoint presentation, but if you uh, can see the colouring on that map of Ireland there, this is the result of the second election of 1910. And you'll see that the Cork, the county, or most but not all of the Cork County constituencies, plus both Cork City constituencies, eight seats in all, were won by the All for Ireland League. Um, both of these elections saw many clashes between party, support, uh, party and league supporters. And uh, the policy of the league was essentially O'Brien's policy, which he called conference plus business. Uh, the key sentence was to unite on a common platform all Irish-born men in the spirit of the broadest toleration of differences of opinion between brother nationalists and of scrupulous respect for the rights and feelings of our Protestant fellow countrymen, with a view to concentrating the whole force of Irish public opinion in a movement to obtain self-government for the Irish people in Irish affairs. But he always made clear that if agreement on home rule meant very large concessions to Ulster, it was ready, the League was ready to, to make them. And by very large concessions, he had in mind uh, such measures as a um, perhaps a veto by Ulster MPs within a Dublin Parliament on legislation affecting Ulster. He also suggested at one point. Yeah, he also suggested at one point um, um, a uh, that a, a Home Rule Parliament could be reviewed after five years. So in essence, a probationary uh, Home Rule. Right. So um, basically, for the next five years, the League, the League's role was to harry the Irish party, to criticise it over various measures like the budget, uh, Lloyd George's uh, radical budget. Um, so I'll just uh, try and give a brief assessment of the... I'll just wrap up by giving a brief assessment of the All for Ireland League. What are we to make of the League in the context of the history of Irish constitutional nationalism? On the positive side, it represented a brave attempt to bridge a social divide that was rooted not only in class difference but but, uh, overlain with religious and ethnic dimensions. It left behind a benign legacy that would flower only in the late 20th century when these divisions had withered, a concept of Irishness beyond the Gaelic Catholic tribe. 
Now, there is no doubt that Catholic Nationalist Society in Ireland in the post-Parnell period was characterised by a stifling conformity in many areas of life. One expression of this was the near monopoly enjoyed by the Irish party on democratic discourse. The, the, the Irish Independent, which was owned by William Martin Murphy, uh, allied with O'Brien and Teeley, blamed all this on Dillon's control his iron grip on the national organisation, although in reality the local grassroots branches had far more power in selecting candidates than they had ever had under Parnell's leadership. So uh, we could say that the party organisation was a, the um, a conformity was a symptom rather than a cause. Uh, the reception that held down O'Brien at the Baton Convention was the same popular intolerance that showed itself at the Playboy riots in the marches against immoral literature, in the editorials of D.P. Morins, the leader, in the convent laundries that incarcerated uh, so-called penitent girls, and in the heckling of the Dublin Jewish home ruler, Joseph Edelstein, when he stood on a female suffrage platform in 1912 with, why don't you go to Jerusalem? In fairness to Dylan, Dylan actually took what might be called a more liberal stance on the question of the use of, of the, uh, the need for Ir the Irish language to be a requirement for entry to the new national university. Dylan opposed that, and he then was, was heckled severely at that same convention of 1909. There were three... Uh, I'll just criticise O'Brien's programme for Home Rule. There were three flaws in it, in my view. First, there is much evidence that the kind of radical concessions envisaged by him, by O'Brien, to please unionists would have diluted it so much as to make it unacceptable to nationalists. We have the example of the failed devolution bill of 1907. Second, at least until the, second, at least until the Great War began, people like Lord Dunraven, who had taken part in the land conference, in other words, pro-conciliation landlords, were exceptional among southern unionists, at least until 1914, in favouring rapprochement with home rulers. Third, Individual friendly unionists like Dunraven were even less representative of the broad, self-confident, million-strong Ulster unionist community. Uh, measures that might placate southern landlords would never work with uh, Ulster Presbyterians. Final question to be considered arises from the fact that, uh, this is a curious fact, if you look at that map again, the areas of greatest all-for-Ireland league strength, uh, and thus presumably of conciliationist sentiment were also those areas that a few years later would exhibit the highest levels of republican violence including actions undertaken against local unionist landowners why well it would take a local historian with far more intimate knowledge of, of cork society than i possess to answer this adequately I'll, i will offer only one hypothesis the immunization effect did the relatively mild sectarianism of other parts of the country dominated by the irish party um, immunise their populations against the radical sectarianism of the gunmen? That's a question that I throw open to the experts. I'll finish there. Thank you very much.